nine o'clock. Hi, welcome to In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor, where we talk about millennials and this crazy world they're adulting into. Welcome to In the Trenches. In this episode, I am interviewing Jeremy McGeorge. Jeremy is an educational consultant, and we actually talk in the first part of the interview what educational consultants do, so I won't cover it here. But I am excited because I'm going to have a lot of educational consultants on the podcast. They're very much in the trenches with young millennials and their families in crisis, and they, they have a lot of experience in, in this area. Jeremy has been doing this for almost 20 years. He has experience working in admissions, program development, and therapeutic treatment to families of at-risk youth. He started his work in the deserts of Utah and Arizona, worked in direct care for Aspen Achievement Academy and Adventure Discovery. He then served as a member of the development teams for leading therapeutic uh, programs as they constructed and managed wilderness intervention programs and study abroad opportunities in the Berkshires, northern Vermont, and even Costa Rica. Prior to joining the Bertram Group, which is his current group that he works with, Jeremy has served as the Director of Admissions and Development for the King George School in Sutton, Vermont. This interview is awesome. I really wanted Jeremy to talk about what it's like to be a millennial growing up on the East Coast, what it's like raising kids on the East Coast, and all the pressure that that brings and, and the culture that, that is on the East Coast. And we got into it. He's very smart. He's got a ton of experience, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining. Okay, Jeremy, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's nice to be here, Andrew. Thanks for the honor to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to have Jeremy here. Um, he's He's been, just to give context to this interview, Jeremy's been working with young adults and adolescents for about 20 years, and I think it's safe to say he has worked with thousands of families dealing in crisis and dealing with unique problems and, and things like that. That's why I'm, I'm so excited. He, he, just, he is in the trenches, literally, and he brings a ton of knowledge with, with what he's doing. So just, just to kind of start out, Jeremy, Jeremy's an educational consultant. Um, for those that have no idea what that means, what, what is educational consulting and how did you get into it? Yeah, it's a really unique little niche. And I, I think you're right. A lot of people don't really know about it. Um, that said, it's, it's really a group of people on a few different fronts nationally and, and internationally that are trying to help guide families into schools and colleges around the world. That, that said, there's a small wing of it, um, which you would kind of consider to be therapeutic consulting, which looks a little bit more like an intersection between behavioral health care and education. So when there are students that are sort of struggling for one reason or another, whether it be the emergence of some clinical issues or they're struggling through an, a life event that was transformative for them or a significant trauma or just just a shift in sort of their existential perspective on life, um, they seek us out as a means of sort of finding the best level of services and the best level of education and, and behavioral health care 
uh, kind of on an international level. So we work with clients all over the place from Turkey to Singapore to California. Um, the greater part of our our group are really kids and families on the eastern seaboard of the United States. So any, everywhere from about Miami on up to Portland, Maine. Why do families call an educational consultant as opposed to Googling, hey, my, my adolescent or my young adults, you know, having problems, I'll Google some programs and make a choice. Um, and, and, you know, for my end, I, we work with tons of educational consultants in our program at Pure Life. And so we, we see that value in it. But for those that, that maybe don't know, why, why would a family use your services instead of just Googling? something well what well, i guess what we hope to bring to the table is a couple different things or a few different things you know we we like to sort of provide some level of concierge services and hand holding through that process to really qualify the decisions that are being made the breadth that we hope to bring to that table is really a hyper specialization in each marketplace and education so it, you know in our firm we've got somewhere around 10 to 13 professionals um, that are out there every day traveling, most of them traveling in excess of probably 70,000 miles a year. They're seeing you know, 20, 50, 100 schools and programs a year, um, building relationships with those people. Most of them are people who've worked in industry and have, have spent the majority of their life on the other side of the fence, whether it be in education or in behavioral healthcare. And what we try to do is really de just demystify that process for families and help them understand where some of the stumbling blocks might be, um, where they can sort of stack their their best assets up against some of the deficits and challenges that they're facing, and really to position themselves in a way to sort of access the best level of care and education. And it's definitely something that I think, from a relational standpoint, helps parents and kids just feel more confident about the decisions they're making. I, and I'm really like educational consultants are in like you guys are on that front line. You're the first call for a family that's that's really growing up. <laughs> yep. right? I mean, you guys and they call us and they're like and, and, and they're ex incredibly valuable to to what we do in the wilderness therapy industry and residential and all of that. And, and I'm a lot of the interviews I'm going to be bringing on to this podcast will be educational consultants because you guys have so much experience in that first call, that front lines, navigating a family through this. And so I, thanks for helping, you know, helping people kind of understand what it is you guys do. When is it that you get that call? You know, how, how can you just walk people quickly through Oh, well, I mean, it seems to always happen on Tuesday you know? <laughs> <laughs> for some odd reason. I don't know if everybody gets their work done on Monday and then they start thinking about their kids again. But that we at least in therapeutic consulting, we get a lot of work early, kind of midweek. That that said that the specific timing of that call, it varies a great deal. You know, on some level, we're on call 24 seven. You know, we we get calls Saturday morning. We get calls at 7.30 p.m. on a Monday. We, we get calls at sometimes, oddly, at 11.30 at night on a Friday night. You know, um, People reaching out, I think, when they finally hit their wall and they maybe get a, a piece of advice from a friend or they make a connection as they're talking to somebody in, at their workplace around you know, struggling with their kids. Somebody sort of mentions our domain, and the next thing you know, they're on the phone with us. And often... 
at least in therapeutic consulting, there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of stress around the situation they're managing. They're, some of them are, are managing acute level crises where their child is hurting himself or, or really struggling with drugs and alcohol or making decisions um, that really put them at a great level of risk. And they need to sort of stop that risk cycle right out of the gates. Others maybe have stabilized, but are really looking for a longer term, more invested um, program that can kind of help them find their way. And, and I guess our first call is always just to sort of tease that out, to get a real sense of where this family is, to, to do the forensics on the front end and figure out clinically what might be going on by talking to all the professionals in the field that have worked with the family. Um, and then talking to the key players in the family and getting a sense of how their family dynamic plays off of each other and how their sort of family systems integrate or don't integrate and helping them then leverage all the resources they have to identify as well as sort of move their individual child or young adult into, uh, into an environment that might help create some change, both for them and for the family system. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways you guys are kind of like interventionists. I mean, not, not formally. Some of you are formally interventionists, but, but oftentimes when you guys get the call, families have been using traditional talk therapy and it is a brick wall and and the next step is all right we need we need a more serious intervention here for for the young person the family and everything and that's usually when a therapist will call you guys and that's that's um that's what we're seeing absolutely and or and or the kid is involved you know or the child and and the student you know which is a really fabulous part of this process you know i guess one of the most important pieces that i really spend a lot of time and energy on is really trying to get buy-in and integration for the student and the child you know and or the young adult and sometimes they're at that critical mass and they're trying to real they're trying to move forward on some significant changes in their life and they don't know how to access that so you know those conversations with with kids that are in the midst of an existential crisis, you know, where am I? Where do I fit in the world? How do I fit into my family? What am I going to do with my life? You know, some of these broader sort of more traditional young adult questions that we all asked when we were in our teens and twenties and sometimes into our forties. Um, they're looking for answers, you know, and they're not getting them. And the, and the nature of experience I find for a lot of kids in high school these days is, is really compromised in that sector. They don't get a lot of opportunities to really mobilize their faculties and to demonstrate them in a meaningful way so that they they have connectedness to an adult world and an adult marketplace where they feel like they can make a living and be connected to communities and have purpose. And, and I find, you know, just those initial dialogues with a lot of my guys around, you know, what do you want to do with your life and what do you see it looking like and how do you think you're going to accomplish that is, it's really a heavy dialogue because a lot of them are really struggling and they're really floundering around that decision. And some of it is because they've had infinite amounts of decision and infinite amounts of resources and they, they're sort of overwhelmed by the breadth of decision and, and don't maybe have the, the discipline or the structure in their life to sort of move through the distress that happens with any process. And, and other times it's because they've sort of been paralyzed by life and they just can't see anything at all in terms of a pathway forward or a set of waypoints that might get them from where they are currently to a place that's more rooted and connected. What do you think is so stressful about the, you mentioned the breadth of decisions, and this is something I've been studying a lot lately with millennials. 
they've got it all right they 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 have mm-hmm. the comforts of life their basic needs are met you know my parents generation you know they're more about simplicity and and stability and you know this should be the happiest generation we've ever seen in theory <laughs> But it's the most depressed and anxious generation we've ever seen. And you just hit a major point, and that is all these choices. And how do you see that playing out with some of your clients? The fact that they do have a lot of opportunity. And we're all sitting here going, like, why wouldn't anybody be happy with that? But we also know that that, that puts a ton of pressure on people. How are you seeing that play out with your calls and clients? And where do you see us going from here? It's indirect, right? It's 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 almost imperceptible. You you don't even notice the the amount of pressure that, that the system is putting on the children and the, and the young adults, right? When they we sort of look in from our vantage point in our generation and the generations that are older at a, a group of kids and a group of young adults that are are struggling with you know finding identity for themselves and finding purpose and and I think that that stress seems almost absurd when looking from that vantage point because you're saying to yourself why why would they be stressed out it seems like everything is wonderful you know and and i think there's an there's sort of an intrinsic process in all of us that that we find some level of purpose or value in our community early on you know and i find that the plasticity in that for young adults and 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 kids in their adolescence at this point is is what makes it really difficult to do that because on any given day you can be a hundred different people on your phone on your computer in your school you have all of these different identities that you can sort of manage and it allows kids to maybe not have a cohesive sort of connectedness for connected version of self and i think what it does is often sort of stagnate or paralyze the identity formulation piece which I think for previous generations, it was just a little easier because there was this impressed necessity. You know, you had to get a job when you were pushed out the door at 18. You started working when you were 15. You had to sort of understand, I think, the the work ethic that came along with life. And and I, this generation in particular has not been afforded the benefit of, of work. You know, a lot of them, the, the rates for adolescent and young adult jobs are down below where they've ever been. And I think that those interactions that are outside of the family really contribute to a sense of self and a, and a real strong identity formulation that maybe just isn't happening because kids are so sort of woven into the family system. And those connections and communications between parents and kids are more heightened than ever before. You know, it's very atypical now for a young adult not to communicate with, his, with their parents for over a week, you know, or a day even where in previous generations that could happen for weeks, months, sometimes beyond that, sometimes close to a semester. You know, you might go off to college and call your parents two or three times during the semester or once a week to check in, but now it's daily and they're sort of inundated with that process and the expectation that comes from the top down. And it creates a ton of anxiety about managing all of those facets of their life. My mom and dad lived in Germany for three years when I wasn't even born yet. And they were early on and married. And I asked my mom this question. I, you know, we were talking about millennials and, and just generational change and everything. And she said, Andrew, in three years in Germany, I spoke to my parents on the phone twice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and 
you know, I have families that are really stressed out if they don't hear for their, from their kids in, in four hours, right? And these are college kids. You know, these are kids that are off navigating their way in the world. And some of them are even, I, I mean, I had a discussion this week with a family whom I've worked with for six years and they're, their boys are grown up and they've moved on and they both have jobs and they're, they're struggling a little bit, but not outside kind of the norm of what a typical 20 year old struggles with. And, and had a real heavy discussion with the parents about sort of the normative experience of what it's like to be a 25 year old. And the fact that they were really in the midst of a very typical experience and that the fact that their kid hadn't texted them in you know, a day or two wasn't atypical. In fact, it was probably something that meant they were off building a life for themselves. And, and that, I think that these communications pieces that we built into our life are really beneficial on a lot of fronts, but they also have some intrinsic sort of weight on behavioral health care, on the emotional state, on, on our own well-being that, you know, I don't know that we've really even begun to understand yet. Why are parents over-parenting? I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest problems we see in, in our clients. Why, why, sure. why, why the over-parenting? Why are those parents at college, you know, calling you and going, God, our kid's not getting back to us. And where previous generations, it was just the norm. I, mean, I know the technology is a piece of that, but why are parents over-parenting and what's the impact that's having on our young people? You know, I, I struggle with the answer to that question all the time, you know, trying to make sense of it. And, and, you know, a lot of what it appears to be is fear and anxiety, right? Fear and anxiety about kids transitioning into their own world. And there's so many fronts to that. You know, some of it is their worries, I think, about their, their kids being as successful as they were uh, historically. And then there are other pieces that um, that have a lot to do with uh, the individuals that they're coming in contact. I think parents are having a hard time sort of managing the social groups or understanding the social groups their kids are running around with. So that creates a heightened sense of anxiety. Um, and and I think the, the pervasive news that's out there about risk exposure on a daily basis and is, is heightened further than it's ever been. You know, you look into the media and you see all of the the pressure and the stress around all of these catastrophic events that are happening on a daily basis. And I think it puts people into a heightened fear state, which then they try to retract and keep their kids safe. You know, and I think the intention is great. You know, people trying to protect their kids from a more complex environment. That said, uh, I don't know that we've worked out the details to create a real balance that works for everybody. Right. What's the, what's the problem with overparenting? What, what do you see these young people? Because you're you're kind of an ad, you're kind of an in between sometimes for parents and, and the young people you're working sure, with. Sure, sure. What what are the young people saying about their parents that are texting them, calling them? Why aren't you checking in? What's going on? You're 24. You're 25. You're 20, You're 19. You're at college. What what are those young people saying? Leave me alone, right? <laughs> you, won't, you won't leave me alone. I think that's that's part of it, right? Like I can't live my life, right? And and I think, you know, it's a there's a duality in it that creates some challenges. You know, uh, the assertion of autonomy, which is a critical piece of young adulthood and and late adolescence, right? I need space. Let me find my way, right? And then the the lack of sort of pragmatic skills or pragmatic opportunities that allow them to actual build actually build autonomy, like 
generating revenue, right? I mean, it's just atypical for a lot of kids in their adolescence and young adulthood now to have jobs that are they're working 20, 40 hours a week and making money, which which on some level paves the road to autonomy, right? So it just allows them to start making their own decisions. And I think, you know, some of it is this duality whereby, you know, the kids are saying, I need more space. And the parents are saying, well, you're not ready because you're not demonstrating the skill sets that it takes to to be ready for the world, you know, you don't have a checkbook, you don't pay your bills, you haven't paid your car insurance, you know, you're you're out powder partying on Friday night and you're blowing, you know, $250 of your disposable income at the bar with your buddies and it just doesn't make any sense because I think that there's this real lack of understanding of what responsibility is in late adolescence and early young adulthood and I think you know the colleges have sort of protracted that out and and developmentally and I think we've also sort of almost infantilized this generation a little bit around keeping them from handling the acts of daily living that most people do on a daily basis, you know, and, and I think, you know, it creates resentment on both sides, right? I mean, I think that the kids, the young adults that I speak to are, are equally as frustrated as the parents in this situation, you know, and, and, I, and I think rightly so, you know, rightly so. That said, it, what I find is it's really a, a very crystal clear dialogue that starts between the two of them about fleshing out some of these realities and, and starting to draw some lines in the sand and starting to really communicate about what resources are going to look like as they transition out of the house or out of college and, and really giving them crystal clear expectations so everybody can make decisions. You know, I, I, can, I can remember the haunting call I got from my father in college where I called him to you know, on a Friday night, because I was, rent was due on Tuesday, and, you know, I was shy, and had been sort of <laughs> leaning on my parents for a couple years in college, and my dad said, you know, it's done, we're done, I'm sorry, I love you, and, you know, but there's no more money, it's just not coming anymore, you know, and, and I'm sorry, so it's time for you to just pick up shift this week, you know, you, you got to start working more, you know, and, and it was just this haunting phone call where I literally felt so abandoned, but it also was a time where it sort of said to me, Hey, you know, this is, it's time. I'm, you know, 19 years old, I'm 20 years old. It's time to really mobilize my faculties and make this work for myself, even if it is a little miserable. And I think, you know, that distress that happens for most young adults, most adults is being protected you know, we we're protecting our kids from that distress, um, and and I think it it compromises their ability to grow up. You know, to move on into managing their own risk instead of having risk management managed for them. I your story reminds me of mine with my dad. I you know I I came from a lot of opportunity and privilege and. Um, you know, my my parents were about providing all the opportunities they could until we finished college. And I remember uh, yeah. I, I graduated like I graduated college, and my dad said, "You are a hundred percent on your own." And like six months yeah. later, he, you know, my fam, my parents were like, "Hey, we're doing a family trip. I'm the youngest of five. He's like, we're doing a family trip to Hawaii." I was like, "Sweet." So like, you and mom. You know, like, like, you, you know, what's that look like? And he's like, well, you're, you're on your own. And I was like, all right. And I was making beans. <laughs> I mean, I had no money. Right, right, right. And yeah. I'm like, no. Bean burrito money. <laughs> Bean burrito money. Exactly. And, and I remember like looking at flights and looking at my savings and, and just being like, wow, this is real. I mean, listen, I understand that I, 
being fortunate enough to even pay for a trip like that at that age was, was, you know, very nice on my end, but that I could do that. But, um, I really, I tell that story often and I appreciate that my parents drew a very hard line and, and there was a very clear understanding at that point, we were never going back, you know? Right. And, right. And I, and I think that's part of it. You know, it's, yeah, it's a commitment on their side as much as, as you know, it, it is on the other side, right? It's like, this is where we're headed, right? You asked for it, here it is, right? Yeah. And we, it, it's, pain, it's painful, right? <laughs> it's not easy, you know, but it, it, it's what we all do as we grow up, right? Yeah. We, you and I had a really insightful conversation a few months ago on your front lawn. And I, so I'm from Utah. I'm in, I, <laughs> I loved Utah. I grew up playing in the outdoors and, and quite honestly, every time I'd go to the East coast and New York city, I, I hated it. Admittedly, I hated New York and I wanted to love it because everybody says, you got to love New York. It's the best. And I would go and honestly, I'd look around and be like, Whoa, these people are really stressed out and, and really you know, upset. And it wasn't like I was like a country bumpkin that lived in a bubble. I mean, you could say I kind of was, you know, being from the West, but I just remember being like, this is a very different culture on the East Coast. I will say my last trip to New York City was the best ever. And I fell in love with the city and finally like saw the charm of it all. So I, I've changed that tune. But uh, there's definitely something happening on the East Coast that, uh, that I want to talk about. And you, you really actually, I think, have a lot of great insight. That's where you live. That's where you work. That's where a lot of your client base comes from. Are people truly more stressed out on the East Coast, or is it just a stereotype? It's really hard to say. You know, I, I guess I I find people are pretty stressed out across the board. You know, when when I meet families, and I'm obviously looking at a very atypical end in terms of the group of people that are calling me on a daily basis. But the you know, I think there is definitely a heightened expectation for performance on the East coast academically, professionally. It's something that puts a lot of pressure on people. I think from a very young age, you're expected to sort of plug into a really broad set of activities and then to be a master of those activities. You know, you see, I mean, you see in my peers, I, I see, you know, 10, 12, 13 year old kids running around on all state teams to compete in lacrosse and to compete in tennis and, and, you know, parents that are spending 20, 30, 40 hours a week in their cars running around New England to sort of compete and get on lists for application to private school and application to colleges and really spending a lot of time trying to sort of build mastery in these very sort of small little subset activities. And, and I think it, it's a stressful life. You know, there's a lot of traffic. There's, um, there's the expectations financially. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's an expensive place to live. So people have to generate more revenue to do so. And, and I think that the weight of that on families, on kids, on communities as a whole is stressful. Right. I mean, I travel for a living. I spend, you know, 100 days a year on the road out seeing and living and, and, and exploring other communities. And there definitely is an intensity in the Northeast corridor that that puts a lot of expectation on our kids and on our, and on our families to really deliver. Right. To 
to deliver at the highest level almost competitively. And I think there's an intrinsic stress built into that. And, and it's with that heightened sense of stress, you obviously get a heightened sense of conflict because everybody's a little bit more on edge, you know, and, and that said, there are lots of people who manage that really well. And there are huge communities of people on the Eastern seaboard that have found ways of managing that stress and finding little micro pockets to support their kids and themselves in that. But I think intrinsically the overall, the overall lifestyle is definitely just a little heightened in terms of their stress management. Where's the pressure come from of my kids have to have it all, be it all, do it all. Why, why, and, and this isn't just the East coast. I know, but I, yeah. I, I think you're, you're in a place where you have a lot of insight into that. Where does this pressure come from? Of Johnny's got to be in the best programs, the sports, the schools, the, the, it starts at the preschool The you know, where does that all come from? Why, why the stress on that? Because we see a lot of really successful parents like that have made a lot, you know, they, they, they're kind of self-made people, but they're not raising their kids the same way they were raised. And maybe that's two questions. So, you know, the pressure piece first. I think with everybody setting their sights on that heightened sense of accomplishment, you know, that there's, there's a spoken and an unspoken pressure that comes in that, right? There's sort of the demonstration of the behavior. You know, you watch your parents who are very successful people and you want to emulate that, right? You see them having the flexibility and resources to travel, to, to acquire, you know, things that most people can't afford, to live in environments that, you know, are insular and beautiful and, and special on many levels, right? And and I think simultaneously hypercomplicated. <laughs> Um, when you kind of mentioned simplicity earlier, you know, I think there's a loss of simplicity as you, you know, as you acquire more, it just becomes more difficult to manage, but, um, the communities and the families find ways of managing that. And I, I think some of that is just the process of watching your parents do what they do. Right. And, and trying to emulate that. And on some level, trying to be equally as successful, if not more successful as they are. Right. So I think that every kid kind of looking up at their parents sort of says to themselves, you know, I want that or I don't want that. I want to have it in a different way. But we definitely try to emulate our parents, whether we want to or not. It's just kind of sort of an indirect process of growing up. Um, the other part of it, I think, is more intellectual and more community driven, which just has more to do with the standards in a community and the expectations in a community and the expectations at a high school and on the sports fields and and at the party on Friday night for you know, having the right shirt on and driving the right car and, you know, sort of finding ways to sort of externalize your identity, right? And I think, you know, more than ever, we live in a community and, and a, uh, you know, a culture that, that externalizes a lot of our identity. And, and I think, you know, those kids want that just like their parents did. And, and, you know, we don't sit outside of that. We all get caught up in that race. And, you know, finding ways to sort of titrate down, to slow down, to find the simplicity to connect on a relational level is, is a lot of what's taking place in these programs that we work in and spend time around. And, and in the boarding schools and in the colleges, you know, that's their intention is to sort of sometimes bring people back to a place that's a little bit more simple and that they can focus on a little bit, you know, more abstraction than, you know, sort of the practical side of externalizing their identity, you know. 
acquiring things. And, and I think that pressure is intrinsic in, in most families on the, on the Eastern seaboard, you know, and, and probably across the country, you know, you see it a little bit everywhere now. It's just sort of rammed out of your throat. You can't pick up your telephone without being marketed to on a daily basis. And it's hard not to want a taste of it, I guess. It's, it's hard to grow up in a, a household where as you're, as you're a young adult and considering what your future might look like, and I'm, I, I know I went through this phase of, well, if I don't at least do create the, 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 the lifestyle I grew up with, then I've failed because I've had every opportunity to, right? And that's something I had to struggle with, you know, in my mid to late 20s was I, I don't have, it, it doesn't mean I fail if I don't recreate what my parents did for me. And that drive is still there. Even to this day, I still want my kids to have a similar type of experience. And hearing you talk it through, it it, it started to connect for me uh, just a second ago. So that that helps a lot. And I think we, you know, as a as an as an adult male, we all struggle with it. As a you know, as an adult female, we we struggle with that. The race towards that next level, that next acquisition, that next job, the you know, the thing that we sort of perceived to be better than what we currently have right and and I, I wake up every morning and that mantra of humility of just like trying to relish the current right trying to be present in the in the space we live in and helping my kids and families do that same thing right like we, we've got a lot of really great things right now and we should be focusing on that right and and living in that and and de-escalating the anxiety and the mood dysregulation around it because you know, this is life is pretty good. You know, there's no, well, I mean, for the most part, there's no catastrophic events going on, you know, on a daily basis. And it's important to remember that because you can kind of get caught up in these little minute, minute things, which can seem very profound. And then they create a ton of distress internal to the family system. And, you know, helping people liberate from that for a little while is important. Absolutely. I do an activity with our young adults where I have them map out, you know, four or five needs out of a job or, or you know, and I, I have them kind of walk through what they would need financially out of a career. The answer I most often get is I'd like to, I would like to be able to provide for my family what I had. And, and it, it sort of sets this bar, but the bar keeps getting set higher and higher and higher. And at some point, someone in the family's got to say, well, let's change our approach, right? And, and uh, yeah. I think you mentioned in our conversation back east is, you know, if I'm raising a family and we grew up in this neighborhood, my son or daughter has to go to this school to be able to afford this neighborhood if I want them to even be close by and, and stay as a community. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... The prospect of my children, of my kids that I'm working with, for them to be able to even be a neighbor of their parents is very low, right? I mean, it, statistically, you know, if you just look at income generation across the boards in the, in the United States, it, we live in a very, very unique little socioeconomic um, bubble on some level on the eastern seaboard. And, and just to have kids have the ability to move into Fairfield County and live next to their neighbors, they've got to have a job that's going to be in excess of six figures, you know, and that's, 
that's a big stretch for a lot of kids, you know, especially coming out of school. And, and you can see the inclination for fam- families to sort of pave that road smooth for them so that they'll get there. Right. But it often just protracts the process of autonomy because they've got to supplement their kids' incomes for another 5, 10, 15, 20 years sometimes. And it, I also see complicated that, stuff. You know, it's really complicated. Yeah. There's, there's not an easy solution. I mean, at some point, the dialogue's got to change a little bit. I, I think it, it's especially hard when we get these young people that have learning disorders and, you know, they've got some, some different capabilities than maybe their parents had. And, and yet, yet parents are trying to, and, and it's all good natured. I mean, who doesn't want what's best for your kids? Everybody does. But, right. try, you know, hey, my kid's got a, a learning disorder. Or, you know, he, he may have some real um, executive deficits. And, but, but, you know, we need, we need him to be able to operate at this level. And, you know, I don't, I've never heard a parent actually say those words, but, but there's this feeling. I'm sure when I'm a parent, I'll feel the same way, right? Um, and, and that's where I think. You can't help it. Yeah. And, you and can't I, help it. Yeah. And that's where I think you, you come in and you start getting the calls of, you know, he's, he's shutting down on us. He or she's shutting down or, or really having a hard time. And. And that's where I see a lot of these young people kind of just go, man, I can't do this. I can't manage. I can't keep up. Uh, I have, and they're very aware. In my experience, these young people are very aware that they have every opportunity and, and they're, you know, I don't see the spoiledness often of whatever, you know, I see people, these young people going, man, if there's anybody who should be successful, it's me. And I can't even get through a semester of college. And and, and therefore, the vicious cycle begins and parents trying to do more and more to help and push and young adults shutting down more and more. And that's that's where people like you and I start getting phone calls to say we, we're in a vicious cycle and we can't get out. What advice would you give to the young millennial that is feeling this pressure and is falling apart or stuck or paralyzed right now? What would you tell that young man or woman? I think seeking out new community is huge. You know, finding people that stimulate you, that you can connect with, that are safe to talk about the things that are complex in your life. Um, That can be Uncle Charlie. It can be a professional. It can be a close colleague. It can be a mentor. But somebody who can provide a little wisdom in your life and a little a separate vantage point than your peers give you. You know, I, I think our peers are wonderful in supporting us in so many ways, but they're, they have their limitations too, because they're struggling through the same things that we are, you know? And I, and I think to breach that generational gap is always a really critical step in finding help for yourself, you know, to talk to people who may be 20, 30, 50 years older than you are. Um, and to take from them, you know, the, the value of their wisdom and, and simultaneously to go the other way and to be, inspired by youth right and naivety and and the beauty of possibility you know and to reach out to small children and to be inspired by them and i think you know finding communities that allow you to do that is what will help anybody through a difficult time you know? and, and you see it in the drug and alcohol research maybe for the first time that they're finding you know this these these addiction problems are really rooted in people's communities and feeling connected to other people. And, and I think, you know, if you can't do that, then ask for some help to find that, 
and and take a risk that somebody else might know better than you do sometimes. You know, and I, and I think that grain of humility kind of coming out of the gates when you're struggling is a huge piece of being successful going forward. Just admitting to yourself that you may not have the answers, but that they do exist and you have to find them somewhere else than, than where you think. What about moving? You know, uh, a lot of our clients, most in your circumstance, they end up going to a different place, right? And, and how do you see that help? It's huge. You know, it's huge. And, and I think daring yourself to sort of live the fantasy of what you want your life to look like is a, is a big part of it. You know, sort of having a vision in your head of, you know, do you want to be running a taco shop on the beach in Mexico? Do you want to be living in a penthouse apartment in Manhattan? You need to be running a coffee shop in Seattle, you know, just, just, creating a fantasy for yourself and then using that as sort of a, a, a means or a search image of starting to identify a pathway going forward and, and, you know, moving someplace, changing your venue, affording yourself the ability to, to connect with a culture and a community that's different than you ever have before creates profound change, whether you like it or not. Right. And, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's a very natural intrinsic process for, for all young adults. It's just, cutting their own teeth and, and leaning on themselves and leaning into their problems instead of walking away from them or expecting somebody else to fix them. Right. And, and I think that that's when, you know, that's when people cross the bridge from really struggling and being anxious about life to really engaging it. And it can just look so different for all sorts of different people. But, you know, sometimes a change in venue can make a profound difference. Did you have a time as a young adult or, yeah, as a young adult, were you physically moved, whether it was college? The, the re- Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I packed up my car and moved to Arizona from the Midwest, you know, and I had, I had never been. I had this illusion that it was going to be something in my head. And, um, and I knew it was going to be that I could afford the financial side of it in terms of college and, and packed up my bags and moved out West and it was hard, you know, searching for work and finding new people and connect. I had like one person I knew in a whole state. And um, I remember coming back that summer after, you know, a year of being there and sitting on my parents' couch in, you know, this beautiful spot on the lake and, you know, having a great Michigan, dinner right? and sitting down and just kind of, what was that? Michigan, right? Yeah, in Michigan. Yeah, in the Great okay. Lakes. And, and, and kind of breaking down, you know, and, and kind of losing it and, and wanting to give up. Right. And being lonely. Right. And, and, and still having a good group of people that I knew in Arizona and like was off to a pretty good start. And I had a job and college was going great. And like, <laughs> but there was still this real loss of, uh, and grief of losing what I had in Michigan, which I think, you know, was at that point, 19 years of living, you know, and, and my family and brothers and sisters and all of that, you know, so it was, I remember just sitting on my parents' couch and just sort of losing it. And, and my parents saying, you know, at the end of that conversation, you know, you don't have to go back, right? Like you, you can come back here and do this, or you can, you can carry this out. You know, this is really up to you. And, and you have the ability to carry this out if you want to. Right. And it was such a haunting thing to have them say, right? Like, 
oh, this is supposed to be hard, <laughs> you know, like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I remember packing up that fall to go back after kind of working their summer and, and thinking to myself, this is great. I'm so excited to go back. And I think, I, you know, things are in alignment now and, and I feel like I'm ready for this next level of challenge. But I think some of it was just them cutting me free to make that decision, you know, and, and you know, and also be, having the determination and the feeling in, internally to just say, you know, I don't want to come back into the nest right now, you know, and I, and I think, you know, allowing your kids to do that is a critical part of them growing up, right? I, I always say, like, you know, the second you learn how to swim is the minute you realize you're drowning, right? And there's this this element of, like, distress that's intrinsic to this process, right? You need to feel your head go underwater a little bit and be a little fearful before you really start to swim. And, and then you realize it's not that hard, you know? And you kind of float <laughs> if you take a deep breath and cool yourself down and, and focus you swimming's not that difficult you know and and i think you know that same process happens for all of us in so many different venues in our life and i think the the key to that story is and your parents didn't rescue you right in no sense that oh and they wanted to man believe me <laughs> they wanted to you know, they missed their boy, right? They wanted him back. And, and you know, but the, you could just see, you know, they, they couldn't say that because they knew it wasn't time to say that, right? And it was probably one, I'm sure if I asked them and I never have, you know, how hard was that discussion for you, right? I'm sure they would say, you know, that was one of the hardest discussions we've ever had, right? Because that was the moment we had to say, like, you do what you want, right? You do what you need for yourself, not what we want. And that's, I think that's part of this whole challenge, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Heavy. Heavy. What advice would you give to parents that are in the thick of this pressure of my kids got to have it all, be it all, do it all. We've got to be in the best schools. Um, and maybe they're seeing a young person, their child shut down. What What advice would you give to those parents and or what advice would you just give parents in general on, on the East Coast or all over the place from, from your work that you're doing? What, what are a few key things you would say about raising kids that you wish all parents would adopt or, or be aware of? I think it starts with just slowing down and spending time together you know, and, and finding ways to do that no matter how uncomfortable it is. No, no matter how difficult your child makes that to to create audience for discussion, to create audience for compassion and love and understanding, and not to be okay with with the segregation and the silos that occur in adolescence and young adulthood, to afford them space, but also to take the time to understand their dilemma, right, and to be within it and to to support them from an emotional standpoint, but to start titrating them off in terms of supporting them from a financial or a resources standpoint and just helping them understand what it's going to take to start making those things happen for themselves. But I think it really comes down to spending time together and finding ways to do that. And in a non-confrontational approach, just being connected and, and, and sharing in your humility and your struggle as a human being with your child and finding a way to just be human in all of this. 
and not being okay with door slamming and people walking away and and just it, it it's not an easy process to connect it takes time it takes audience it takes venue it takes forethought but to take the time to strategically do that for you and your family is one of the most important things you can do so for the family out there that's listening or the young adult that's saying well we we do but there's a lot of electronics hanging around. I, I remember the dinner we I remember the dinner we had earlier this year with my sister-in-law. And my sister-in-law grilled you guys. And you know, knowing that you had so much experience yep. working with families, and she's like, How tell me what I need to know about raising my kids and electronics. Because I, I time makes sense, but I can t- I know every family out there is going, but but you know, the time is there. I mean, we're, we're talking about yep. a generation. You and I would come home from school. We would say bye to our buddies. And with the exception of a phone call, you know, about homework or maybe a friend across, across the street that might be free to hang out, it was interaction with parents and siblings, period. There was no outlet. Yep. And, and interestingly right. enough, we're seeing these millennials that go home, they send 88 texts a day. So it's not about engaging with mom and dad and they're not socializing with adults. They're, they're straight back to the phone and their buddies and they can, they can keep connecting with their friends all night. Um, how do you manage that as a parent? Where, where do you draw the line and where do you see people failing to draw the line? I think really rigid boundaries, right? that are a little uncomfortable for everybody, right? I mean, I'm the greatest defender, right? I work in a field where I constantly have to be turned on, right? And and I'm sure, you know, most parents in today's world justify that. We all do, right? We all say to ourselves, oh, this is just work. I got to do this. It's really important. But finding ways to, to shut that thing down, to set it on the counter, to put it away, to avoid technological sort of immersion for your kids is an important thing you know and i think you know the comedic side of that is just buy flip phones right like make it really (laughs) miserable for your kids to get in touch with their buddies right and you know i don't there's not a lot a lot not a lot of reason why any child and this is in the data under the age of 15 should have anything but a flip phone you know i mean these are these are addictive devices that can consume your reality and compromise all the relationships in your life and from a diagnostic standpoint, will create a heightened sense of anxiety and depression in adulthood. I mean, the, the statistics are there. And we just turn our head and say, you know, well, let's go down and get another $1,000 phone for our kids so that they can chat with their buddies. And, and I don't know that it's the right choice. And I think taking the time to reflect on that and some of the families that I feel like have the best balance that I've come in contact with are those that are willing to just set all of that aside lock that stuff up in a microwave and just make it go away for a while so that there's time to connect as humans. And if they make your life hell around talking to their buddies, invite them over, right? Teach them how to have real relationships with people in real time, right? Those are complex, but profoundly necessary. Do they even sell flip phones anymore? Oh yeah, you can still get them. Great. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Go right down to your local store. They got them. You can definitely buy them. They're, yeah. I always love watching people flip those things open. Stepping That's back into 
time when dinosaurs were on the earth, right? <laughs> I know, right? Um, <laughs> do you have any specific book recommendations for young adults and or families that you like to recommend around these topics? Um, a lot of what I'm doing in terms of the recommendations for books really comes down to helping parents um, manage the process of treatment and understand what impact that's going to have on their life. Um, one of the ones that, that I recommend a lot is a book by a gentleman by the name of Tim Fain, and it's just called Not By Chance. Just how parents kind of boost their success in either accessing treatment or, or utilizing treatment and then transitioning back into life. And you can sort of use it as a metaphor if you're just, I think it's a good book, even if you're not participating in residential or out, out, uh, outdoor behavioral health care. It's just a book that talks about the best ways to sort of reintegrate from treatment. And even if you're just, you've got a situation where you're doing some family therapy and you've got a kid who's seeing a therapist once in a while. I think that the ideas and the concepts outlined in that book can be really valuable in terms of focusing and building boundaries in family. And, um, it's one of the, it's one of the better ones I think I've read, um, that allows, allows us, you know, to have some sort of pragmatic skills we can be doing on a daily basis just to make things better. What, what got you into this and why do you, what do you like about it? I love being the catalyst of change, right? I love coming into families that are in chaos and showing them that through more chaos, they find order, you know, and, and helping them sort of ignite this reaction in their family, which creates a profound level of change and then watching them through finding new communities and new connections with people, create order and predictability and balance and stability in their families. I just, I can't get enough of that, you know, and watching my boys and girls move through these profound existential crises in their life where they have no connections, no value, no understanding of what they want to do and finding some sense of meaning and order in that. It's just a profound thing to witness. And I thank them every day for allowing me to share in that process. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's grace. It's just pure grace. It's amazing. It's messy. <laughs> it's really, really messy. But it, it's, it is beautiful to be a part of. It, it's like watching a flower open. So it's really, really cool. If people want to find you or reach out to you, can they find you on social media or email? Do you want to share that right yeah, now? Yeah, it's if you just, you know, you just type in my name, Jeremy McGeorge. I come up for my practices uh, that I work with, a great group of people called the Bertram Group. We're out of Westport, Connecticut, and and uh, we're pretty easy to find on Facebook and and uh, and on the internet as well. So um, get a hold of us if you want to talk. We're here. Jeremy, thanks a lot. That was awesome. I always learn something new Thanks, when I Andy. talk to you, and uh, I appreciate your time. Me too, man. It's, it's a pleasure just being a part of your life, man. Thanks a lot. I feel the same.